good morning. How are you all? Good. I, I was just so overwhelmed by the goodness of God when we were singing that last worship song. I'm like tearing up and Jeff's like, you okay? Like, yeah. I'm just so overwhelmed by the goodness of God in my life. And, and I think, um, yeah, you know, as we think about that, as we think about what God has done for each of us, like how much more you know, do we want to serve him? And how much more do we want to give that joy to other people to experience him? Now, this morning, we'll be kicking off our global month, uh, where over the next four weeks, we'll be hearing a little bit more um, about global missions, and we'll have some of our global workers like Cecilia come and share with us, um, some of our global partners have some videos prepared, as well as some experienced guest speakers who will be coming along to share as well. Um, you already know that I'm really passionate about this topic of missions, and I'm really glad that this is going to be, yeah, I get to like speak on this for my last sermon um, this year before Matt leaves. Um, you know, when God laid this message on my heart, it, it was quite heavy. I did wrestle with it, um, but I thought, whatever, like, I'm just going to go out with a bang. <laughs> you might feel uncomfortable at times, but you know what? You know, this is what God is wanting to say to us this morning. So let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, for the, the sacrifice that you made on the cross, God, for giving your son, God, for, um, yeah, for saving us from um, the brokenness and the sin that um, we have been overwhelmed by, God. And there is nothing that we can do without you, God. And it's only by faith in you, Lord, that we have this saving relationship, God. And Father God, we just pray that this morning as we come into this space, Lord, Lord, would you prepare our hearts to hear what you're wanting to speak to us about, God? Soften us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to hear what you're wanting to say to us and to be willing to obey and to go forward with it, Lord. And so, God, be with us in Jesus' name. So many of you know um, that our church's vision is to build disciples who represent Jesus to everyone, everywhere, with everything but many of you may not know that we also have a global vision, and that is to see Indigenous disciple-making movements among unreached people groups. Now, when we say people, unreached people groups, we're not, actually, um, we're not just talking about people who don't believe in Jesus. We're, uh, you know, there are many of those in our workplaces, in our neighbourhoods, and even our own families. Um, and yes, they need to hear about Jesus too. But most of these people know a Christian personally, live close enough to a church, uh, have have enough education and simple uh, exposure to a Christian culture to find out about Jesus uh, through a friend, colleague, or even go online and Google it if they really wanted to. When we say unreached, we're talking about people who have little to no access to the gospel. They, they may be people who live in places where Christmas and Easter isn't celebrated at all. They may be people who don't know a Christian or have never even seen a church because they live in a city or country where 99% of the population are those of a different religion. There may be people who may speak languages that the Bible is not translated to yet. There may even be people who live in countries where their government has blocked their access to the outside world through the control of literature, news, education, and even internet access. A people group is considered unreached if it is less than or equal to 2% evangelical Christians. That is, they don't have an indigenous community of believing Christians 
with adequate numbers and resources to evangelise and make an impact with the gospel without outside assistance. You know, sometimes we think about the spread of the gospel. Um, I'm just going to use this analogy of pancakes. Um, as though we're you know, pouring maple syrup on pancakes, it kind of, you know, you pour it and it just kind of spreads, right? And then, you know, the pancake gets syrup all over it. But when we think about the complexities of unreached people groups, it's more like pouring maple syrup on waffles because of the cultural, social, geographical, linguistic, and many other barriers between different people groups. Some pockets will be saturated with the gospel, while other pockets will have very little or be absolutely untouched requiring someone to physically cross those barriers in order to bring the good news to or to come alongside Indigenous believers so that they can help equip, serve and strengthen the work. Defining the mission task based on people groups rather than geography means that some people um, who minister in foreign countries may not actually be involved in missions because they may be working with people who already follow and believe in Jesus. While some people working cross-culturally in ministries right here in our own country, like um, Cecilia or like um, Megumi, who is ministering to the Japanese diaspora in Melbourne, um, is doing missions. If you think about it this way, evangelism is sharing the gospel with people around us. That, you know, when you share the good news with your colleagues, with your friends, with your neighbours, your local outreach ministries that are happening at this church, um, that's evangelising. There may be a few differences between you, but overall there aren't too many barriers that you need to cross in order for them to hear and understand what you're trying to communicate to them. Discipleship, on the other hand, is bringing new believers into maturity. So when you're leading a Bible study, when you're teaching someone to pray, when you're uh, teaching them how to apply what they've learnt about God, how to share the gospel, how to hear and obey God's word, uh, in their everyday lives, integrate their work in faith, figure out how God might want to use um, them and their money, how to relate to others, manage our emotions, raise our families, and all that kind of thing to become more and more like Jesus. That's what we call discipleship. Missions is the intentional process of crossing cultures, uh, languages, and often geographical barriers in order to carry out these activities. This doesn't always look like giving up your life and career to travel across the world um, and be a church planter. It can also look like being a small business owner in Indonesia. It can look like a dance teacher in Japan. I know also a guy who does surfing in Japan and another one who drinks coffee um, and makes you know, friends with all the people in the cafes and, and the baristas. Or it can even look like being a doctor in Niger, um, Africa. You can take your job, your skills and your family to intentionally live or work in a city, country or neighbourhood where the people have little to no access to the gospel. In John 1.4, it says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Or in other words, God became human in Jesus and made his home among us. The barrier between us and God was so great that he literally moved into the neighbourhood so that we could see, touch walk with and interact with the living God. One of my, one of my um, friends, Z, yeah, used to get commissioned to travel around the world to take photos and videos of some of these unreached areas that I'm talking about, um, which many were very beautiful and untouched. Like, what a life, right? He, he just kind of gets to travel and, and see the world. 
I remember he told me once that he hiked up a mountain and um, passed through one of the villages um, there where he engaged in a conversation with a local woman uh, through his interpreter. But when he asked whether she knew Jesus, she replied, Jesus? No, he doesn't live here. It's hard for us to kind of comprehend how someone can never, ever, ever hear the name Jesus when it's something that's so familiar to us. But this lady didn't have one person, not one person in her village or neighborhood who could tell her about Jesus. You know, sometimes we, take, we need to take intentional steps to move and remove barriers so that we can be among the people and live out Christ in the flesh. To paint a picture and set the scene, I'm going to ask um, that we're going to play a video. And it's, it is a little bit confronting, um, but I just I think it, it speaks louder than me talking. So why don't you turn your eyes to the screen? billion. That is the number of people who have never heard the name of Jesus. They live in a place where they will grow up, live their lives, and die without ever hearing his name. Let that sink in. 3.2 billion. It is hard for our brains to fully comprehend how many people a million is, let alone a billion. If he is the only way to get to the Father and have eternal life, we cannot be okay with this as Christians. 3.2 billion. If they never hear about Jesus and his saving work on the cross, they're going to go to hell. It is a reality that we try and hide ourselves from. Romans 3.23 and 6.23 say this really well. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. There are no innocent people in this world. We are all in need of our Savior's sacrifice. The church needs people willing to lay down everything to tell people about it. In Acts 1.8, Jesus gives his final instructions to his disciples. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Three point two billion. Confronting, isn't it? In the Gospel of John, Jesus says that 
He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through him. Not a way, as in one of many ways, but the one and only way. For everyone has sinned and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save him unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring the good news. The gospel is good news, fantastic news, terrific news, extraordinary news, life-changing news. As there is hope and life and freedom in Christ Jesus who saved us by the blood he shed on the cross. But the gospel is not all rosy. If there wasn't sin, brokenness, eternal death, and separation from God, we wouldn't need saving. I'm not saying that we should you know, go around telling people that you know, they're going to hell if they don't believe in Jesus, I'll, because I'll probably shut you out before you get to speak any further. And if you are doing that, I'll probably be the first to smack you. <laughs> but as Christians, we need to wrestle with some of these realities. They're difficult. They're confronting. But it's necessary. Because what you really believe about salvation will determine how seriously you take the Great Commission to go and make disciples of every nation and every other thing that Jesus taught. Jesus doesn't rescue us so that we can be nice Christians and people who come to church week after week, encouraged and blessed and enjoy the warm, fuzzy fellowship of one another on a Sunday and get our free pass and ticket to heaven. He saved us from sin and eternal death and gave us a new and greater purpose for our lives. To live and serve him. To bring his name glory by revealing and serving him. Um, to uh, really Christ to every tribe, people, nation and tongue. Discipling them. Baptizing them. Teaching them to obey what Jesus taught us. Have you ever cried for the lost Prayed in anguish for those who are yet to know Jesus. Have tears rolled down your face as you sit with and listen to someone share about their brokenness because they are already living in hell on earth without knowing the hope that we have in Jesus. Because I have. I was so desperate for God to use me, to do something useful out of me. That in my sin and brokenness, I prayed for him to break my heart for what breaks his. Sin, addictions, injustice, brokenness, refugees, human trafficking, abuse, domestic violence, 
idol worship, I've cried about them all. But God doesn't just want us to cry about these things. He wants us to take action and do something about it. You know, when I was on um, a short-term mission to Taiwan, I remember the missionary host told us, you know, after everything you've seen, after everything you've heard, after everything you've experienced, I don't need you to be gandong, which is to be touched. I need you to xingdong, which is take action. Do something about it. That is what every Christian is called to do. What breaks your heart? What has God put in your heart? Because the Great Commission is not just a suggestion. It's not just a nice suggestion for those who care. If your view of calling and your theology and understanding of salvation and your reasoning excuses you from meaningful participation in God's redemptive plan, then you have already wandered away from God's purpose for your life. People always used to say to me, oh, it's so good that you can you know, know what God's will for your life is at such a young age. Guys, it's literally in the Bible. Every single Christian should know what God's will and purpose for is for their lives. To live for him, to serve him, to bring glory to his son's name and revealing Jesus Christ to all the nations. The hardest part of that is working out what that looks like specifically for you. And then being faithful and obedient to him in that. What does that look like in your workplace? What does that look like in your neighborhood? What does that look like at your school, through your hobbies? What does that look like with the skills and resources that he has given you? Throughout the Bible, uh, God is at work through his people in two different ways. Centripetal, which is what some people call the attractive or attractional model, which is to come and to see. That is when we live our lives in such a way that people are attracted to it and ask us what makes you different. In the Old Testament, Israel's role was to be a light to the nations, to live their lives in such a way that the nations around them could see the true and living God and are attracted to their lives and their God. One such story is found in 1 Kings 10, when the Queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's fame, which brought honour to the name of the Lord. She came to test him with hard questions. She arrived in Jerusalem with a large group of attendants and a great caravan of camels loaded with spices, large quantities of gold and precious jewels. When she met with Solomon, she talked with him about everything she had on her mind. Solomon had answers for all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba realized how very wise Solomon was and when she saw the palace he had built, she was overwhelmed. She was also amazed at the food on his tables, the organization of his officials, and their splendid clothing, the cupbearers, and the burnt offerings Solomon made at the temple of the Lord. She exclaimed to the king, everything I heard in my country about your achievements and wisdom is true. I didn't believe what was said until I arrived here and saw it with my very own eyes. In fact, if I had not heard the half of it, your wisdom and prosperity are far beyond what I was told. How happy your people must be. What a privilege for your officials to stand here day after day listening 
to your wisdom. Praise the Lord your God who delights in you and has placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king so you can rule with justice and righteousness. Queen Sheba was attracted to come and to see for herself the great kingdom and wisdom of Solomon. And she left giving praise to Yahweh, the God of Israel. In another very familiar passage um, found in the New Testament, sees the early church living out their calling in this way too. And it says in chapter 2, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. The early church lived in such a way that people were attracted to them, and each day people would be joining them and coming into salvation. And then there's a centrifugal or the go-and-tell model where people of God, such as Paul and Barnabas, went out, travelled and moved from place to place in order to witness and tell people about the living Christ. When Jesus gave the 11 disciples the Great Commission, he tells them to go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and to teach these new disciples to obey all his commands. And again... In Acts 1.8, he tells them that they receive power when the Holy Spirit comes so that they can be witnesses, telling people about him, not just where they were, but everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It required them to get off their butts and move. And later on in Acts 11, we actually see this happen when the persecuted church were forced to scatter and began sharing the gospel with people of many different nations and backgrounds. And it says this, Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. And here's the thing, not everyone will be called to go overseas and to become missionaries. In a foreign land, some of us will be called to stay, to disciple, and to disciple others into maturity, to teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded, and then be here to welcome those who may be coming to us, and then send them out once again when they're mature. But none of us are called to mind our own business and leave that work to the missionaries, to the leaders, or to the church pastors. Every single Christian, whether you like it or not, once you've been saved, has a role to play in God's redemptive plan to the people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Because our allegiance to Jesus is not just the fact that he's our saviour. Our allegiance to Jesus is also to the fact that he's our Lord. And we do what our Lord says. I used to think missions and evangelism was just kind of inviting my friends to church so that they can hear the gospel presented by the pastor um, and believe and then be saved. And That's not it at all. We are a priesthood of believers 
Meaning each of us has a call and responsibility to live out our faith in our everyday lives, no matter what season we're in, no matter where we live or what our circumstances might be or what our jobs might be. Every believer is a priest and pastor to the unbeliever, bridging the gap between God and the people. You don't have to bring your friends to church in order for them to come and hear the gospel. You can share it with them and disciple them wherever you are. The centripetal and centrifugal functions of the church need to work hand in hand and serve one another. If everyone is to go out and travel and move overseas, we would never be able to establish a church where people can be cared for, discipled into maturity, and then sent out to do his work. But if no one is to go out and take intentional steps to cross these barriers and share the gospel with those among the unreached, as a global church, we will never be able to disciple all the nations as Jesus commanded us. Jesus also commands us to love our neighbours. And a few weeks ago, you know, Shady mentioned and he pointed out that some of us can live in the same neighbourhood for years and not know any of our neighbours. But you know what? Jeff and I have the privilege of knowing at least 15 to 20 of our neighbours in the surrounding streets. We see and talk to a handful of about five to six of them, um, non-Christian families, almost every single day. As our dogs play together, we, we kind of meet at the park at five o'clock every day. Um, and they play together at the park, and then we'll stand around, the humans will stand around and chat. We'll talk about our lives, we'll talk about our work, we'll talk about our hobbies and our families. And we've started a WhatsApp group, and we literally see them more than our families. The other day, one neighbour lost her keys, and another neighbour um, went out of her way to drive her to a doctor's appointment. Uh, one of the teenagers recently turned 14, had a birthday, and another child from a different family asked his mum to make sure she asked how that went and how, what they did to celebrate. Another neighbour travelled overseas for work and we found out you know, just the other day that the airline lost her luggage and you know, everyone was chatting about that and, and making sure that they were okay and what, you know, whether we needed to help you know, sort out things while uh, the partner sorts that out. We, just, we don't just know the names of our neighbours and, and do a you know, smile, hi and, and nod when we see them over the fence. We've built a little community where we know about the things happening in each other's lives. You know, people always say, why go overseas when there's so much need in our own backyards? Well, what have you done in your backyard then? When we first moved into our neighbourhood earlier this year, we realised that both our immediate neighbours, on our left and on our right, were Bible-believing, church-going Christians, and that they had been in this community for a while. But in, you know, in Australia, nine in, out of ten people, nine out of ten people will personally know a Christian friend, a Christian neighbour, a Christian colleague, or someone who can tell them about Jesus. But when you move to some parts of Asia in the Middle East, that number drops to almost less than 1 in 10. Less than 1 in 10 people in these areas will know a Christian who they can ask about Jesus. In Matthew 9, we read that Jesus travels through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. When we saw the crowds, he, saw, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. And Jesus moved and he traveled to teach and announce the good news about the kingdom. And when he traveled, he saw that the harvest was great among the crowds because there weren't enough workers. As a global church, we won't be able to disciple the nations and people of every tribe and tongue if we're only content to serve our immediate neighbours, if we're even doing that at all. Some of us have to move and scatter 
so that we can be among the crowds where there aren't enough workers. In 2 Samuel 7, when, um, when King David was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king summoned Nathan the prophet. Look, David said, I am living in a beautiful cedar palace, but the ark of God is out there in a tent. Before the coming of the Holy Spirit, the ark was like a gold chest um, that carried the presence of God um, in the Old Testament where people had to carry it um, with them everywhere. And Nathan replied to the king, go ahead and do whatever you have in mind for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the Lord said to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord has declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? I have never lived in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this very day. I've always moved from one place to another with a tent and a tabernacle as my dwelling. Yet no matter where I have gone with the Israelites, I have never once complained to Israel's tribal leaders, the shepherds of my people Israel. I have never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar house? Now go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people, Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone. I have destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on earth. And I will provide a homeland for my people, Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past, starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people, Israel. And I'll give you rest from all your enemies. You know, King David was deeply troubled that the Lord's presence had nowhere permanent or beautiful to live in. But the fact is, God doesn't require a physical home because God is always on the move. Some of us make excuses about why we can't be involved in missions because our families and our kids need the best education in the West and of the mortgages we have or because we don't want to give up the comforts of our lifestyles here or because God hasn't called us but if we're coming up with excuses about why we can't or shouldn't go, we've already missed the point. God not only calls us as a priesthood of believers, he also calls us his treasured possession. Literally precious jewels that are designed to be mobile and portable, ready and willing to move when he moves. When David was faithful in obeying the Lord in little things and followed God's leading, um, throughout, his, leading throughout his life, God in turn was faithful. He established David's throne, his future, and his home. God was faithful when he calls, and he will also equip and take care of you. Not all of us are called to be missionaries overseas, but if our excuses exempt us from meaningful participation in the Great Commission and God's redemptive plan, then we really need to take a good hard look at our hearts. Like King David, the Israelites in the wilderness, um, the Apostle Paul, and the scattered church in the book of Acts, we too need to be alert, to keep up and to follow when the Lord moves and when the Lord stays, organizing our lives around the great commission that he's giving us in whatever ways he has called and gifted us. Meaningful participation in God's mission can look like going, sure, but it can also look like sending through financial support, caring for and supporting those who are to go. You can pray for unreached people groups, for missionaries and for workers of the for the harvest field. There are so many resources, apps and websites and videos and 
prayer guides that you can use for that. There is no excuse not knowing how to pray and what to pray for missions. You can mobilize others to get involved or to go themselves. Advocate for missions and missionaries. Tell people about the needs and encourage them, mentor them, get them involved. You can welcome unreached people groups right here in Melbourne. Volunteer and work alongside Cecile and Megumi as they teach international students and reach the Japanese diaspora who come from places where they have very little to no access to the gospel. Host a homestay, I don't know, teach English to refugees. There are so many people from unreached areas and suburbs like Springvale. You know, when Jeff went back to study for his career change, he became friends with a non-Christian Vietnamese international student, uni, and then helped him to settle in Australia. He helped him to move house and figure out involvement and catches up with him um, to see how he's going. And he, last night, not last night, Saturday, no, Friday night, Jeff took me to a northern Vietnamese restaurant to try a different type of fur. And he was like, my Vietnamese friend showed me this, you know, and it's delicious. And I, I'm learning something new about their culture. And if you don't and can't do any of these things, learn. Learn about the needs that are out there. Educate yourself by reading, going, on, going to mission conferences, doing a mission course like Kairos or Perspectives. Go along to mission discussion groups or sign up to missionaries' newsletters. You know, heaps of organisations actually um, post stories and needs and educational resources on their social media pages. You can literally be scrolling Instagram and learn something about missions. You know, sign yourself up for a short-term mission trip at least once in your life, just so you can see, experience, and discern how you might fit into God's global mission. Don't just excuse yourself and think that you can leave the Great Commission to someone else, because that, that is not our call. If it's not just for the few, missions is not just for a portion of the church, but for every single Christian in the church. It is our responsibility to go and make disciples of all nations. Let's go get the worship team up. In two weeks' time on Sunday, the 22nd of October, we'll actually be hosting a prayer and worship night right here at our church, as Pastor Carl mentioned before. This is a time where we can come together physically and posture ourselves before the Lord to say, here I am. And throughout history, God has revealed his purposes to those who position themselves before him for his service. Like Abraham, to move to a foreign land and be a blessing as he has been blessed. Moses, who was called to deliver the captives to a land of freedom. Like Jacob and his son Joseph, who God used to bring blessing and provision to their neighbors, communities, and nations. Like Nehemiah, who was called to stand in the gap and rebuild the wall and reestablish God's people. Like Jesus' followers, to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, set the oppressed free, heal the sick, and preach about the kingdom of God. So I just want to encourage you to come, to position yourself before God's glory and say, here I am. To discover what he might call you and equip you and empower you to do through his Holy Spirit and in his presence for his purposes. Bring your families, bring your kids, bring your life groups along. When we have the gift of the Holy Spirit, we don't have any excuse to say that we don't know what God wants us to do. Be ready because God is always doing something new. He's always on the move and he's always wanting to speak and guide you into his will and his purposes. So position yourself so that you can hear, so that you can listen, so that you can obey. Lord God, we just thank you, God, for who you are, Lord. 
God, we thank you for your saving grace. We thank you for this incredible relationship that we can have with you, Lord. But we also know, Lord, that there are billions and billions of people out there who are yet to know you, who are yet to hear this good news that we have hope even though there is still brokenness. We have hope for our sins. We have hope for the pain that we are experiencing in this life, God. And so, God, would you use us? Would you speak to us? Would you call us, Lord? Would you send people from this church, God, to go to the nations and to be the workers in these harvest fields? God, we need you, Lord. God, they need you, Lord. So, Father, we just pray, Lord, that you would use us, that you would move us, God, that you help us, Lord, to overcome our fears so that we can be useful for you. In Jesus' name.